For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, who was Sarah Plummer Lemon? Take a look back at her historic achievements. Learn how an ecological mystery at the Mission Garden led to the discovery that some exotic and elusive neighbors have been visiting the garden every night in search of food. And travel writer Jane Stern on exploring the very best in American road food. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The Tohono O'odham call the mountain range to the north of Tucson, Babad Doag, or Frog Mountain. In the late 1600s, Jesuit missionary Eusebio Kino renamed the range the Santa Catalinas. 200 years later, a botanist and artist named Sarah Plummer Lemon became the first white woman to climb to the top. Next, Laura Markowitz brings us her story. It's just after sunrise in the Santa Catalina Mountains, or Mount Lemon, as people around here like to call it. We're up above 9,000 feet. It's cold. All right. All right. I'm just going over my mental checklist here. The most important thing is water, and I have about a gallon. I have my emergency space blanket. Wynn Brown is getting ready to hike the Oracle Ridge Trail. It'll be around 13 miles of treacherous footing and a descent of 3,000 feet. Let's see, I have my phone, I have my notebook, I have a pen. Brown is the author of several books about the Southwest, and currently she's working on a biography. There's just something about Sarah Lemon that grabbed me probably seven years ago, and I've read through 1,400 pages of her handwritten letters. I just walk around Tucson with her voice in my ear. Today's expedition is maybe more pilgrimage than mere hike. Brown intends to walk the same route that's thought to be the one that Sarah Lemon and her husband John took in 1881 to reach the summit. And being able to put my feet on the same trail that she walked on, I mean, what a gift (laughs) to be able to do this. I've never hiked this trail. Um, so I'll be looking at this through new eyes, and, and I'm going to try to look at it through Sarah's eyes. What would this have been like this many years ago? This trail's really been decimated by fire. Well, look at the view, though. Look at this, look at this incredible expanse over here. Ooh, what are we looking at there? Something in the daisy family. One of many thousands of yellow daisy-like plants. Okay. So I think we're just about ready to go. Sarah Lemon was born in Maine. She and John lived in California. So what brought them out to Tucson? There was a botanical frenzy going on in the 1870s and 80s, and everybody wanted to have a species named for them. Everybody was out just clambering up and down the hillsides and combing the the stream beds for, for new ferns. 
and then sending them off to the very few experts to identify. So because this area had never been botanized, um, it was very tempting. And it was Sarah's idea to come and spend their honeymoon botanizing the Santa Catalinas. This was not your typical honeymoon destination. The train had only arrived in Tucson the year before, and there was the ongoing Apache conflict. Also, the lemons were not your typical explorers. Wynne Brown says they both suffered from a host of serious health problems. The whole reason that she was out west was because she couldn't survive the eastern climate. She kept coming down with pneumonia, bronchitis, something called catarrh, which is basically a buildup of mucus in the throat and the lungs. Oh my. Attractive thought. She realized that she was going to die if she had another eastern winter. Sarah moved to California in 1871 on her own. And it was there that she met John, who was a Civil War veteran. He'd fought for the Union and been captured by the Confederates. Wynne Brown says he never fully recovered his health after two years of starvation. They were incredibly frail. It just astounds me when I, I think about it. I, looked, I was thinking about that driving up here. It is hard to imagine these two rather sickly characters spending three weeks trying to climb the sheer prickly slopes of the Catalina Mountains. There was no trail. There were impassable ravines. And like any desert hiker, they had to carry their water. What was their equipment like? Well, she, <laughs> she wrote her sister about her outfit, and she wore a deep olive green walking suit made out of broadcloth and corduroy, which had to be incredibly hot. And it was a short dress on top, and then it had Turkish trousers on the bottom. Then she was wearing leather leggings and hobnailed boots and gloves and a broad-brimmed hat. And then they were also carrying plant presses. They had water, they had some kind of bran mush, and they had little rubber cups because sometimes the water was scarce and they'd have to be able to squish them into a crack in the rock to get some water. Oh, that's an evening primrose there. It's not flowering at the moment, but... And there was a penstemon back there too, and some lupins. Brown says botany was not a very lucrative profession, uh, at least not for the lemons. Oh, they were constantly trying to figure out ways to make money. They were collecting plants and then selling the seeds, selling specimens, and, and getting about, oh, you know, pennies per plant. They found about 300 new species in Arizona. The mountain marigold, sometimes called lemons marigold, named for him, not her, was one of their commercial successes. This was the first place where they found it. They apparently collected seeds from it. That plant from here is the stock that all the nursery plants that we now get are from. And we have it in our yard. I planted it last year. I stop and tie my shoe left. If you backed up a step, you would tumble about 2,000 feet to your death. That's so. why it seems like a good idea to tie my shoelace. Ooh, hang on. What are these? There's something in the raspberry family. They're beautiful, aren't they? I have to get a picture of this. The equivalent of the camera for Sarah Lemon was her paintbrushes. Wynne Brown says Sarah hiked with art supplies, and she painted hundreds of detailed botanical illustrations. She published them in books, which sold for 25 cents a copy. 
when John and Sarah were, were up here, they were finding a lot of new species of plants, and they referred to them as new glories. And I keep finding these treasures about Sarah and thinking of them, ooh, another new glory. <laughs> Sarah Lemon studied physics and chemistry at Cooper Union in New York. She was the first woman to address the California Academy of Sciences and the second woman to be admitted as a member. She also worked as a volunteer nursing injured Civil War soldiers at Bellevue Hospital, and that's probably where she met Clara Barton. She met Clara Barton? She did. Clara Barton is famous for establishing the Red Cross, and years later, Sarah Lemon established Red Cross chapters in San Francisco and Oakland. She established Santa Barbara's first library. She helped establish the first Natural History Association in Santa Barbara. A new glory that I just discovered is that she founded the first training school for nurses on the West Coast. Uh, she once wrote that to her it's like death to be idle. Sarah is certainly a role model for me because there are times where I might have wanted to quit on something and then I think you know, I don't have pneumonia and bronchitis, and um, I have all these tools, and I have the, the same curiosity, and I try to be as resilient as, as she was. After weeks of trying, Sarah and John Lemon failed to reach the summit from the Tucson side. They gave up. They were out of supplies. But actually, Sarah didn't give up. She and John had heard that a rancher over an oracle knew of a way up the north side. So they made the 40-mile journey to meet Emerson Oliver Stratton, and he agreed to take them up to the top. Sarah Lemon finally realized her dream of reaching the summit. Isn't this just amazing? Wow. You can just see, I don't know, how many miles away we're looking there. Oh, hundreds. Emerson Stratton was distantly related to Pima County surveyor George Roscruge, and he convinced Roscruge to put Sarah Lemon's name on the map to honor her achievement as being the first white woman to reach the summit of the Catalinas. And what's amazing is that Sarah and John came back 25 years later in 1905 to celebrate their silver wedding anniversary by doing this trip, by going from Oracle. And they looked up Emerson, Stratton, and the three of them, and they were all in their 70s at that point, came up this mountain. And I hope I'm still doing that in my 70s. Wynne Brown hopes that Sarah Lemon's story of grit, perseverance, and living life as a trailblazer will inspire all of us. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. You can learn more about Sarah Plummer Lemon on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Those of us who live in the city must acknowledge that we share the desert around us with a multitude of creatures, including some who prefer to stay off the radar, which is kind of ironic. On Saturday, I went to the Mission Garden to join many other Tucsonans who were eager to learn about a group of stealthy visitors who've been arriving nightly from the area around A Mountain. 
Before talking to some experts, I listened to a few stories that others had about having close encounters with bats. My name is Molly McCasson, and my bat story is when my father-in-law was about in his late 80s, he's, he was a great bird lover, and bats aren't birds, but still, he said, oh, I'd love to see all those bats flying out underneath the underpass. So we went out Broadway in Houghton, and <laughs> we're standing there. We were pretty close, and, you know, 2,000 bats, whatever, came in just pulsing waves, and my father-in-law was... <laughs> It was like a culminating thing. He, he was just awed. It was the most exciting. It was, it was really great. <laughs> it was great. I can hear it in your voice telling the story. Yeah, it was yeah. beautiful. So first of all, just identify yourself for me. Okay, my name is Debbie Beecher, and I'm a bat biologist in Tucson, and I do bat research in Arizona and New Mexico. And I have my own consulting firm. I do contract work for Forest Service, Park Service, Bureau of Land Management. And I'm always interested in any story about bats. And so if someone calls and says, I have an odd bat at my house, I will go out and identify it. This gathering tonight is in honor of recognition that there's at least five species of bat at who least. are shopping for food here, here in the garden. And getting water. Bats primarily need roost sites, water, and the appropriate food. Well, roost sites could be up, we're right at the base of, of a mountain, and there are a lot of rock piles and a lot of crevices, so bats could be in there. We have nearby bridges, and bats will use bridges in Tucson, but they come over here, and they're all these insects. They've essentially made this orchard full of insect food. The mystery here was they were finding debris of stuff at the exhibit hall up high on um, near the ceiling. They sent me a picture. Chuck Graff, who is a donor and volunteer here, put up a wildlife camera. It gets triggered by um, movement. And he looked at the pictures and here's this bat eating a caterpillar like um, a straw. And it's, it's sucking up the innards and shaking the outside skin of the caterpillar and flicking it against the wall. And what we're seeing is caterpillar sheaths stuck to the wall. And he got some tremendous videos, which I'm going to show during it's, my it's talk. It's like tamale shells it, or something, Well, I tell it? kids when I give school talks, you always unwrap your food. And they're just unwrapping their food. All right. <laughs> When you talk about bat detectors, what kind of tech are you using? We've got some tripods ahead of us here with a camera and some other devices. So tell us what you use to measure or look at the bat population and get involved in that secret world. Okay, so as soon as you turn on a white light, the bats will leave, um, they'll be disturbed, you won't see natural behavior. So these lights are infrared lights. You can still see a dim light, but they've shown through time that it does not alter bat behavior. Mm -hmm. So we'll have these lights on. Those are two little action cams that the filters have been taken off, so they'll be able to see an infrared. That will turn on in infrared. Here is a detector. If I turn it on, this is sensitive to high-frequency sound. Mm -hmm. and So this is a heterodyne. Uh, bat detector so it just clicks at you mm -hmm. it doesn't save the call 
those two bat detectors and I'm, I'm letting people move around with them later on but those will give clicks but then it will also save the call put a date and time stamp on it and the the brilliant people who have invented those created algorithms to take that sound electrical sound and translate it to a picture that we can see and then I have two other detectors that are time expansion and, and people will be able to see as a bat flies by their call go across the screen. About the species that we expect to see tonight, what would be the smallest and what might be the largest? Is there too much of a difference between those factors in terms of these local bats? Well, in Tucson, the basin, Tucson Basin, we have the largest and the smallest bat species in North America here. The little western canyon bat is about four grams, so you can calculate how many you could mail with a first-class stamp. <laughs> I, maybe you can. Yeah, but the largest bat species in North America is a western mastiff, and it's more like 65 grams. And I brought a western mastiff with me that we'll be able to look at tonight. She has an injury and can't be released. She can't fly. Okay. So great. here's a big brown bat. And he would echolocate at about 30 kilohertz. Every time he opens his mouth, he's shouting out high-frequency sound. If I take that away, the detector away, he is still shouting out sound above what we can hear. And he is not blind. He can see just fine, but he gets better definition with high frequency sound because he's nocturnal and he's out with no moon, he's trying to chase an insect four, four millimeters in size. So sound is his friend, echoes are his friend. And what can you tell us about this uh, bat in particular? Who is this? Um, this is a big brown, it's a uh, scientific name, Eptesicus fuscus, and we call him Archie. Um, we've had him 17 years, 16 mm -hmm. years. Wow. It was fur. I mean, it's got amazing fur. Incredibly soft. Very, very mm -hmm. sweet. The only thing I can think of I've ever felt like that was would be like a lucky rabbit's foot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you can't really see his tail. Um, it, it's enclosed in a membrane. Uh -huh. But also in identification, one of the bats you find at Carlsbad and under the bridges in Tucson, called free tail bats. And they have just a long tail sticking out. Well, if you want to make Archie happy, what do you do? Is there something that he likes, enjoys in terms of food or drink? He likes a back rub. He likes mayonnaise. He likes whipped cream. Not just a little dollop, just yeah. a little dollop. And he loves a little toothpick with avocado on it. <laughs> so Bob says the avocado tastes like insect guts. I mean, obviously. <laughs> I never thought of that. Maybe that's why green I don't like gooey. avocado. Yeah, green and gooey. I'm Amanda Moss and I'm a native Tucsonan and I was once looking at like sunset hunting and over on the east side, not here. Sunset hunting? Yes. I like that phrase. I've never heard that before. And uh, it was over by the Pantano Wash and I, so I was going and walking around and trying to find the best place to get a photo and then it was walking under one of the underpasses and all these bats came out and I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and they were like right over my head. I was walking under the underpass and I was like crouched down and doing all this whole thing. Did you have the wherewithal to take a picture while that was happening? Not of the bats, but right. I got to the other side to get to take the photo of the sunset. <laughs>
From last June, that was a visit to the first-ever Bat Night at the Mission Garden, featuring conversation with bat researchers Debbie and Bob Beecher and stories by Tucsonans Molly McCasson and Amanda Moss. The Mission Garden has welcomed their nocturnal winged visitors, and they may be holding more Bat Nights in the future. For hungry travelers and food lovers with a taste for adventure, Jane and Michael Stern have been trusted trailblazing guides for over 40 years. An auspicious first date at a New York pizza parlor in 1969 opened the door to their shared culinary passions. That led to over 40 books, including the cult favorite Road Food, that's now in its 10th edition. And NPR listeners may know them from their appearances on The Splendid Table. Jane Stern is also well-known as a tarot card reader, and in 2003, she published Ambulance Girl, a memoir about overcoming clinical depression in her early 50s by taking the training to become a certified EMT. It was made into a movie starring Kathy Bates. Obviously, I had too much to talk about with Jane Stern, so I kept it simple by asking questions about her protocol for fine diner dining. Jane, while one should not judge a book by its cover one may judge a diner by its blank. Odor. One of the things that make me do a, a 180 when I walk in the door of a, of a diner that doesn't pass muster is there's usually a terrible smell of old grease and Lysol and, <laughs> and desperation. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's, you know, you're right. The outside, of course, that makes an impact and if you're lucky enough and you walk in and you see a glass pie case with all the blue ribbons won at the state fair for their pies I mean that's going to sway you but it's the odor and the help wanted sign in the window Mm. which usually translates to you're never going to get served you know, well, we've all sat in restaurants, you know, and, and you hear crickets and, you know, you're waving your hands in the air and nobody's noticing you're there. That used to make me very nervous. In the olden days, since I've been doing this for over 40 years, the scientists used to say um, microwave in use used to throw me off because that, to me, meant that they weren't cooking from scratch. But now everybody uses a microwave. So, Jane, do you have a go-to dish when you walk into a new diner? Yes, I do. It's not really a Southwestern thing, so I'm not sure how it would play, you know, in in your part of the country. But my kind of go-to dish or my hallmark of greatness is an open hot turkey sandwich um, with mashed potatoes and gravy. Because the ways that they can scrape that up are unbelievable. <laughs> um, first of all, I hate, 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 hate deli turkey. So if I see those, you know, kind of reconstituted, you know, boar's head or whatever. There's sort of a shape, or, or rather it's a, been exactly. shaped. Yeah. I mean, a turkey is not shaped 
you know, like an oval or, or a, you know, I mean, so I just can't stand that. I can't stand fake mashed potatoes and I can't stand fake gravy. So you put them all together and it's either somebody spent an awful lot of time on this dish, this homely little minor dish, or they don't care. And if they don't care, I don't care. The flip side of that same coin, Jane, is do you have a never order dish? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the little really lesser known things about my um, partnership with, with Michael Stern, who, you know, is still my writing partner, is Michael is an omnivore. I mean, you could you could put, you know, a piece of linoleum in front of him and he would try it. I have more food Think like I hate ketchup, mustard, mayonnaise, pickles, relish, any condiment, and that this is just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. So you know I, I'm very fussy about what I eat, and Michael, as I said, you know would eat shoes if you gave it to him. <laughs> Jane, does America have a soup problem? That is so funny you are asking me that because I just this week have been going all around Connecticut, where I live, going to soup places and finding the most phenomenal soup. Phenomenal is not a word I would usually connect to soup. With soup. Okay, well, tell me what you think of when you think of soup. I think of watered-down flavor. Um overcooked vegetables, stringy meat. Did you grow up with, like, a Campbell's kid, you know, <laughs> somebody opening a jar? My grandmother made really good mulligan stew. Oh, I like mulligan. But that's not really soup. That's There you go. Maybe Connecticut is just having some sort of soup revolution or something, <laughs> but I went to one place called um, Soup Time, T-H-Y-M-E. Of course. It's just a little deli, but they had 15 of most delicious soups that I have ever tasted. I mean, classic ones and unusual, interesting ones like gorgonzola, spinach, something or other, but they were just terrific. Now, is this, are you asking this because it's the fall and you've got soup on your mind? <laughs> I, I almost never have soup on my mind, Jane. But okay. I do think that America may be experiencing a soup revolution is perhaps the cheeriest thing I've heard in months. So I think our listeners need to hear that. I think soup is going to become the next hot thing, hot, that literally hot <laughs> thing. <laughs> My guest, Jane Stern, continues her love affair with American diners. Among her books are Road Food and 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.